Open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the book of Psalm, Psalm 122. We are quite obviously departing uh, for the morning from our study of Mark's gospel for reasons that I think are pretty obvious. Um, but before we get to the text, I do want to thank everybody that helped out last week. We had a good number of our, of our body here that were gone, and I know Chris stepped up. He made coffee and he brought the message. That's pretty impressive, so I want to thank him. All the reports were good. Um, of both the coffee and the and the teaching, so I just want to thank everybody. Thank my wife, who's not there. She's supposed to be there. Uh, I know she, it's an extra responsibility for her when I'm gone, so I want to thank everybody. So thank you again. Um, the reason we're, of course, going to the Psalms and departing from uh, Mark's Gospel just for the week is uh, there are the events that are transpiring in the Middle East, specifically in Israel. And there's always a lot of question, always a lot of interest and confusion and all kinds of stuff when something like what has happened, like the tragic events of this last week have happened. Uh, right up front, I'm not going to be talking at all about these events like relative to end times, okay? Um, my end time theology, for those that would you like to know it, is... Jesus is coming back. We don't know when. Be ready right now. Okay? I might not get to finish my next sentence. It's my end time theology. Okay? In a nutshell. Now, this is about the broader question that I think a lot of people have um, of what should we be doing? There's certainly a helpless feeling for a great many of us that watch the events that are transpiring and we can't help but think, what in the world should we do? be doing. And so that's, that's the target we're after this, this morning. But that's actually the last question. There, there's four questions that we need to ask this morning, address, and what should we be doing is, is the last one. Uh, the first question, and some of these questions may be a little surprising to you, but I think as we get into them, you'll understand why I take the time to address them. The first question is, who are exactly, what is Israel? Israel's in the news, talking a lot about Israel. Well, what exactly is it? Well, it's more than one thing, and they're all related, but they're not synonymous. And they can't necessarily or shouldn't necessarily be used as being synonymous. So that's the first question. And frankly, we'll, sp we'll spend most of our time talking about that. And then the second question is, what does God's word say about the four different, you know, it's four meanings we'll talk about different, about Israel. Uh, another way to put that is, what is his attitude towards the subject of Israel? We can look at it that way. Um, which then leads to the third question, what should our attitude be? So that we can finally answer the question, what should we be doing? So what is Israel? What does God say about it? Or him, them. And then thirdly, uh, what should our attitude be and what should our action be? And to get there, uh, we're going to be working essentially from Psalm 122. So I'd like to read the entire thing. It's short. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem that is built, the city that is compact together, to which the tribes go up, even the tribes of the Lord, an ordinance for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for their thrones were set for judgment, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls, prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, 
I will seek your good. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, especially in light of the horrific things that have transpired this, this past week, Lord, we look to you for wisdom that as your people, Lord, your church, we may know how we should respond, what we should do or be doing, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's get started. Number one question. Um, who or what is Israel? Now, you may say, well, why would you ask a question like that? We all know who or what Israel is, right? Consider this, though. Imagine walking out yourself, walking down the street of any major city uh, and encountering ten strangers at random and asking each one the question, is America a beautiful country? You, could, you would get vastly different answers, not just because of the political mindset of the person you're asking, but because of what they think the word America means. I mean, if, if I ask, what do you think of the United States of America, a nation state with a political identity, I'm going to get answers based on what you think of the United States as a nation state with the you may say it's a great state greatest thing that ever happened you may say it's you know horrible and all the other stuff we see on the news right if on the other hand if I ask you what you think of America and you start thinking about you know like the Grand Canyon and the coast of Maine you're, and what you know whatever you're gonna go oh, it's gorgeous see talking about the same thing but not and so the answer may change so when we ask the question what is Israel we need to be careful or at least we need to know exactly what we're talking about first question then what is Israel right um, first thing first thing is Israel is a person a person a who right his name originally was Jacob he was the son of Isaac grandson of Abraham um, He's the guy that, you know, ripped off his brother's birthright. I don't know why we say it that way, because he just negotiated a really good deal is what he did, right? But he, he managed to get his hands on his brother's birthright through methods that are questionable. Uh, my father-in-law was a great, great Old Testament storyteller, and I'll never forget the way he would tell that one. He used to refer to, to Jacob as a rascal. And he had a way of saying rascal that really wrapped it up well, you know. Um, Jacob was not a good guy. And, of course, after he did what he did to his brother, he had to flee for his life. And he went off to visit his uncle Laban, which was not a smart thing to do. And um, if you know the story from the book of Genesis, you know that while he was there, he found himself with two wives and two concubines and a bunch of kids and a bunch of stuff. And then he decided to go back to where he was born, but he knew his brother Esau, who now he assumed, hated his guts, was waiting with his own private army, which is not good. And so when he gets to the, the border, he, like I said, rascals are a really good description of the guy. He sends his stuff in first, and then he sends his wife and kids in first, thinking that he's you know, going to see if his brother's going to kill him or not. And he's there by himself on the other side of the border, and he wrestles all night with an angel. And the angel says to him, the angel says to him in uh, Genesis 32, he says, uh, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, conniver, deceiver, supplanter, scoundrel, rascal, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. His new name meant God prevails or God wins. And he was a changed man. Right? That's who Israel is, that guy. And of course, he, had a, he was the inheritor of, of an incredible promise 
That's part of what Esau had bargained away. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. This is God's promise to Abraham, which is the foundation of really all we're talking about. The Lord said to Abraham, now go forth from your country, to your, from your relatives, or from your father's house, to a land which I will show you. Underline the word land, right? And I will make you a great nation. Underline the word nation. We'll talk about that. I'll bless you, make your name great, you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And of course that's pointing to the coming of the Messiah. So this, this Abrahamic blessing or covenant is channeled now through you know, Isaac because of the way that it worked to Jacob. Jacob is the inheritor of this promise, right? So it's a who that became a who all. Because you don't have to go very far in the story in the book of Genesis, and you find the phrase, the sons of Israel, occurring. Well, initially, that meant Israel's sons. That kind of follows, right? But in time, it came, it came to mean the entirety of the ethnic group that flowed from him, his sons and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and everyone that were his descendants. So that in time, the phrase, sons of Israel, is shortened to Israel. But the predominant way that this people group is described throughout Scripture is as the sons of Israel. It occurs almost a thousand times in Scripture, the normative descriptive term for this people group. Right? Even, even in less than positive ways. For example, in um, Genesis 49-7, um, the sons of Jacob are, are, are being blessed, the tribes are being blessed, and one of the tribes, we need not get into which one, uh, hadn't behaved themselves very well, and so this is how their blessing read. And it was, uh, Cursed be their anger, for it's fierce, their wrath, for it's cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. So even when they were being spoken of in a negative way, in this case it was blessing that was somewhat less than a blessing, um, that they were spoken of as this group, this group of people called Israel. Israel is now a nation, a people. Well, well what of that word nation? Now, we got to be careful with that, because when we talk about the people of Israel as a people group, and we use that word nation, our mindset immediately goes to like a nation state, like somebody that has a seat at the United Nations. You can't go there yet. Not yet. Uh, the word that is used for nation here, and I don't speak Hebrew, but I can use the study tools, the word that is used is the word goy. And if you know any Yiddish at all, you know that goy is the root from which the word goyim, which is a Yiddish term describing Gentiles that is highly derogatory. You're one of the goyim. You're one of those, right? So the word speaks of ethnic groups. You're one of those unclean, disgusting Gentile groups, right? It means group or mass of people. Now, when the Hebrew scholars translated goy in this verse into Greek, and these were the ones that had insight as to what was intended, obviously, they used the word ethnos, which is the Greek word from which we get ethnic. So the term is describing an ethnic group. Well, what is an ethnic group? An ethnic group is a group that can be described or defined by cultural traits. They will probably share the same DNA. They will share the same language. They will share the same traditions. They share those cultural things that identify them as a group. And the difference, for example, between an ethnic group 
ethnos and a nation, a nation state, can be seen, for example, in the Kurdish people. Even today, the Kurdish people are a definitely defined ethnic group, but they don't have a nation, right? Kurdistan is not the nation of the Kurdish people. It's something else completely different. So you have an ethnic group, whether or not you have the political accoutrements of nationhood. So that's how Israel is defined. It's first defined as an ethnic group, right? It is an ethnically, linguistically, culturally defined people group, not what we think of as a nation state. So first it was a who, uh, then it was a who all, this ethnic group, right? And thirdly, it's a land. It's an area. It's a territory. Prior to the uh, entrance in this land of this ethnic group, Israel, it was called Canaan. Canaan is the oldest recognized name for that part of the world, that postage-sized piece of property that has been the cause of so much turmoil. Canaan, occupied by a wide variety of people groups. And this is going to become kind of critical. Uh, we know that Canaan was occupied by the Canaanites. That's an easy one, right? But here's the point. The Canaanites were not an ethnos. The Canaanite people that were in the land when Israel came in the land, they did not share a common language. They did not share common traditions. There were several different ethnic groups that had entered this land and they were called Canaanites simply because they lived in Canaan, not the other way around. It wasn't called Canaan because Canaanites lived there. They were called Canaanites because they lived in Canaan. And that's a distinction that's going to become important as we go a little bit forward, right? So we have this land called Canaan, called that for about 500 years, right? Um, Israel enters the land about 1300. Now that's under Moses. You know, Abram came in from the north with his family, but that's about as far as they ever got. It wasn't until the Jews go off to Egypt and they come back. They left 70. They come back, you know, roughly 2 million under Moses. And they enter the land from the east across the wilderness, right? That's around 1,300, and these dates are really approximate, right? So as they enter the land, it comes to be known as, not just in the writings of Israel, but in the writings of neighboring countries, as the land of Israel. Now, as late as 1200, we still see it being referred to, for example, in Egyptian documents. There's some really interesting Egyptian documents that are generated around 1200 that are still calling it Canaan. And the interesting thing about those documents is even as late as that, Israel is still being spoken of as a tribal ethnic group, not a political entity. That's, that's going to come into our discussion in a little bit. So they enter the land of Israel about... 1300, the land of Israel, that phrase begins to occur, that occurs in 1 Samuel, right? Uh, and they will the land will continue under that name, the land of Israel, or Israel, uh, until Solomon's death. The death of King Solomon, you know, if you know your Old Testament, uh, his son was not a very competent leader. The nation is divided, the ethnic group is divided, and we have the tribes in the north, and they're called Israel but the tribe in the south is called Judah. So we see even as late as the death of Solomon, it's still identified primarily as a people group with what we might call tribal identifications rather than classic national boundaries, although that process had already started. 
The process of Israel being recognized as a nation had already started, but they're not quite there yet, right? The land, the land gets the name Israel and then Israel and Judah until about the 5th century. And then in about the 5th century, the Greeks show up. And that's when the name Palestine comes into use. And Greek writers traveling through the land began to use the word Palestine to describe the area because of the word Philistines, the Philistine people who had occupied the people from centuries before. About the same time Moses is coming in from the east, Philistines are coming in from the southwest. Um, the Philistines are an interesting group of people. Um, and this is where sometimes our Sunday school stuff doesn't help out, you know. You always, you know, you always see the Philistines descri described as these very, like, Arabic-looking people, right? They were actually Europeans. Now, we don't know a whole lot about them. But what archaeological evidence there is shows the Philistines is coming from the area around the Aegean. So they may have either been a, a group of Greeks, not as likely because there's no linguistic connection, or a bunch of people that the Greeks ran off. But they're European, right? So this European group, the Philistines, they come into the land about the same time Moses is coming into the land. And it is from them that the land, first in the writing of the Greeks, and then in the political assignment of the Romans, this name Palestine comes into circulation. And here's the ironic part about that. By the time the Romans come and draw up a map and go and put Palestine on the map, there are no Philistines left. They're gone. All the archaeological evidence suggests very, very strongly that through, the, that through the successive invasions of Babylonians and Persians and everybody else that came rolling through the countryside, that the Philistines were totally absorbed. There is no evidence whatsoever of any Philistine, which remember was European in its origins, any Philistine civilization. Now you may ask, well, why in the world would the Romans choose if they're going to label their maps with the name of a people group, why would you choose the name of a people group that weren't around anymore? Classic Roman methodology. Now, this is my explanation. There's no scholarly research to back this up, and I just offer this as an explanation as to why the Romans would have chosen the name of a people group that weren't around anymore. Consider yourself, put yourself in the Romans' position, and you're trying to draw up this map of all this land that you've conquered, and you want to run it, and you want to run it with the least amount of friction possible, and you got this piece of property, and like five different groups of people want it. If you name it after any one of those five groups, you just lost it. Why not pick the name of a group who don't want it anymore because they're all dead? That's Roman thinking for you. Pretty smart. So it's the Romans that identify this land after a bunch of wiped out people, the Philistines, and call it Palestine. So now we're talking about this land and calling it Palestine. That name will last for about 2,000 years. Palestine will be the name that will continue actually until the 1800s when the first Jews begin to return. Of course, I just glossed over the whole crusade thing. We're not going to talk about that. But for centuries, there were no Jews there. It's not until the 1800s the first Jews begin to return. 1904, the first kibbutz is formed. That process will continue until 1948 when Israel is declared a nation state. So it's not until 1948 that we can formally say Israel now means a person, a people group, a land, and now a nation. So when you say Israel, you can be referred to as a, you can be referring to a nation state, all right? 
Israel's progression into, into a, a nation state was not real smooth. In fact, it got off in a really bad way in the very beginning. How do you define a nation state, by the way? Nation state is defined by its borders and by the laws that govern it, right? The way it is governed, right? Israel ex began the movement towards a nation state with a nation state governance during the life of Samuel, the prophet. And this is a story that's going to ring a bell to a lot of you. You probably never thought about it in these terms. Towards the end of Samuel, and Samuel was a prophet and a judge. Samuel was the last of the judges. He judged Israel and in the process ran it. But Samuel's sons, if you know the story, were, were pretty corrupt and the people did not see much hope in Samuel's son. So in 1 Samuel 8, 4, verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 4 through 7, we read this. Then all the elders of Israel agreed together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. Your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice. This is, I think, extremely critical to where we're at right now. Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all they have said to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So at the end of Samuel's life and the elevation of Saul as king, Israel shifted from a non-nation state but clearly identifiable people group toward a nation state which is now concerned with the formality and the strict definitions of its borders and control and a type of government that is to say a monarchy. When Israel embraced a king, they moved away from a people group organization to a nation state organization, and that didn't work well for them, of course, as we know from the rest of the Old Testament. So what do we have? We have Israel first as a person, then a people, then a land, and finally a formal nation state. Now, why do we go through all that? We go through all that because when we ask what the Bible says about Israel or what God says about Israel, we have to be conscious which one of those we're talking about. So what does God say about them? Well, I don't think we need to spend much time talking about what God says about Jacob because he's gone, right? That's taking care of itself, right? But how about the people? The people group, right? What does God say about the people group? Well, Scripture is pretty clear, and I think we know that we know this well. With regarding the people group, the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, Scripture is clear. He's called them; they are His own. He has identified them as a special people group in all the earth. He has said He will bless them, He will multiply them, He will make them great, which He has. He will bless the one who blesses them and curse the one who curses them, which he has and which he does. He says those who he will, his love will be with them with an everlasting love and an everlasting covenant, and in him all the nations will be blessed. All of that is true. It has happened, and it continues to happen. Nothing changes that. His love rests upon his people. Listen to me carefully. They are the people of God. That does not make them godly people. There is all the difference in the world between being the people of God and being godly people. 
the historical record shows that Israel, like every other group of human beings, well, they've done about average, I think, for the, as, as the rest of us have. They've done about average. We do not want to make the mistake of attributing any special measure of godliness to the people, and most especially not to an individual Jew. I'm going to lay some numbers on you that will probably shock you. But just to be mindful of who we're talking about here. How many Jews died in the Holocaust? Six million, right? How many, dies, how many Jews died in the Holocaust? Six million, right? How many Jews have died in the Arab-Israeli conflicts that followed? Less than a million. How many Arabs have died in the conflicts between Israel? Less than a million. If you add up all the Jews that died in the Holocaust, all the Jews that died in the Arab-Israeli wars, all the Arabs that died in the Arab-Israeli wars, you come up between seven, with about seven and a half million. Since 1948, how many abortions in Israel? Nine million. Nine million. It dwarfs the Holocaust. That's not a godly people. Research done today in the United States of America among people who identify as religious by whatever definition you know, conservative Christian, mainline Christian, evangelical Christians, Hindus, Muslims, whatever, among all groups that identify themselves as religion, all people, which group has the highest abortion rate? The Jews. Not a godly people, but the people of God. Because he has declared it to be so. His attitude is he has chosen them despite themselves. And that's also in the Old Testament. You can find that in the Old Testament. He has chosen them despite themselves, right? Yes, in them all the nations of the world would be blessed. Yes, the Messiah came from the root of Israel. But that doesn't make them godly. Consider this about the land. That was, that we're talking about God's attitude towards the people. Consider this, God's attitude about the land. Um, the first thing is, whose land was it? Did the land ever actually belong to Israel? Nope. nope. Leviticus 25, 23, talking about the redemption of the land. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine. And you are but aliens and sojourners with me. So yes, it's, his, it's their land. He gave it to them. But he gave it to them as stewards to keep it for his purposes. Right? His people. The people of God. But not necessarily godly. Their land. But it's his land. I, I say all of this. I say all of this to say that the issue is a little more complex than we'd like. It would be so much easier, because now we come to the question of what should our attitude be, it would be so much easier if um, they were as godly as the people of God should be, 
or the land was as clearly theirs as we would like it, but it's just not that simple. So our answer to what our attitude should be will not be found in who they are. Our answers to what we should be doing are not found in who they are or necessarily even in what they're doing. Our answer should be found in what God says. What should we, what should our attitude be? Well, our attitude should be to bless them regardless of their behavior. I'm sorry, but that's it. Our attitude should be to conduct ourselves in a way, even recognizing their faults, whether of the individual or the group. We don't have to endorse anything or everything they do, but to bless them. Our attitude should be one of blessing. Recognize their claim to the land, which, by the way, is not to the exclusion of others. And let's give credit where credit is due. If I had a choice between being a Palestinian living in Israel or anything but an Arab living in any of the surrounding Arab countries, I would be a Palestinian living in Israel. Because a Palestinian living in Israel will fare infinitely better than anybody else that's a non-Arab living in an Arab country. And I'm speaking of the Arab countries of the Middle East when I say that. Give, them, give credit where credit is due. We need to acknowledge their legitimate security concerns, all the while acknowledging You know, Jesus, let me ask you this question. Ask yourself this question. Do I really believe that, yes, Jesus loves the Jews, but he loves the Palestinians and the Arabs and the Kurds and every other group just as much? The first nation to accept the gospel, ethnic group, were the Jews, right? Who was the second group to accept the gospel? Samaritans. Who were the third group? Arabs, the missionary center of the first, second, and third century was Syria. Syria was an overwhelmingly Christian nation until it fell to Islam, which is a stern warning to us. The area we identify as Iran or Persia, overwhelmingly Christian. Turkey, overwhelmingly Christian until it fell to Islam. A stern warning to us. Our attitude should be one of blessing. Israel and every other nation and people group in the area in any way we can. So what do we do? What do we do? Here's the bottom line. What do we do? We pray. That's the first thing, and that's the most important thing. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem for three reasons. Number one, God tells us to. That should be enough. He tells us, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Secondly, it's important to pray because of the complexities of the issues. If you can unwiden this knot, let me know, because I can't. And to pray because the problems are spiritual at their root. I mean, I'll admit to anybody, I'd be as happy to turn on the news and read that Israeli tanks have rolled through Gaza and Hamas is gone. That would be a glorious, I'd be a glorious thing. And that Hezbollah was stupid enough to invade from the north and Israel wiped them. I'd love that. What's the long-term benefit of that? nothing. The problem is spiritual at its root. There, I've talked to people who believe that, this is just mind-boggling to me, that a Jew doesn't have to come to Christ to be saved. 
They don't have the spiritual problem of needing to be saved. What lunacy. I don't remember the spot where Jesus says to the 12, you know, guys, you really don't need all this stuff. I'm just telling you so the Gentiles can get saved. No. I'm serious. I've heard that. That the, doesn't need to get saved. He's a Jew. What? No. The root problem is spiritual. That Jew and Arab and Palestinian, if you want to separate there, that all as deeply in need of Jesus as anybody can be. Deeply in need as Jesus. So prayer is the first answer because we need to, the problem is spiritual. Pray for peace. Pray for wisdom. Pray for forgiveness. Pray for repentance. Israel is as deeply in need of, of nationwide repentance as any nation on earth. Pray that repentance will come. At a practical level, if you want to know what we can do, we need to do all that we can do to bring these people groups to Christ. The Jew needs salvation. The Arab needs salvation. And that is done through faithful witness. And that is why ministries like Beit Hashem that Pastor Joyce referred to are so incredibly vital because they demonstrate. Um, I had to step out for a second. I don't know if Pastor Joyce shared all that Beit Hashem does. Um, when a, a woman comes, uh, the abortion rate, she shared that, 75% in Israel. When a woman comes into Beit Hashem uh, wanting to keep her child, they not only do all the stuff that HeartReach would do for them, they supply all of their needs. I'm talking rent, groceries, clothing, everything. For how long? For a full year. That's called a Christian testimony. That's putting arms and, and feet and legs on faith and showing the compassion of Christ. Those are the kind of things I want to get behind. Those are the kind of things I want to get involved with. And the need is overwhelming. The need is overwhelming. Because imagine trying to do all the things that we see, for example, done through HeartReach. Imagine trying to do that in the middle of a war zone. The leader of them, I don't know, I can't even say it. Beata Shem has a satellite in Gaza. They lost their leader Saturday. She left behind a ministry in need of a director, a father, a husband, nine children gone. To me, finding a way to replace her it, this is just me, folks. Finding a way to replace her is a lot more than supplying military equipment to the Israeli army. And that's important. Don't get me wrong. But supporting that and the testimony that goes with it is far more important than any battlefield victory. So as the people of God, that's what we need to focus in doing. We need to focus in finding every creative way we can to bringing the gospel to a people who have forgotten. Simple as that. People who have forgotten. Pray for them. Do everything we can to facilitate the spreading 
of the gospel. I will tell you right now, going for I haven't even asked the board this. I don't think I have to ask the board this. Going forward as a fellowship, we will be supporting, as a fellowship, Beata Shem, and specifically their various outreaches, of which Gaza is only one, for the simple reason that that is a testimony to the love of Christ. And that, more than anything else, is what the Middle East needs. More than anything else. Other things are important. I don't, I, I'm not minimizing the importance of uh, the military response. All that. I'm not minimizing any of that. But I am saying that the most important thing for us is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem and do everything we possibly can to facilitate the presentation of the gospel in a way that penetrates hearts and minds. Father, I thank you for your word this morning, Lord. It reminds us that whatever else we may be doing, Lord, whatever else may be on our agenda, Father, in that moment of free time when our minds are not occupied, it's always a good idea to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Father, we even have a promise that if we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we will prosper, Lord. But that's not why we want to pray it, Lord. We want to pray for the peace of Jerusalem because that is an overwhelming need of our day. Father, the leaders that are making political decisions and military decisions, Father, they're desperately, even the ones with the absolute best of intentions and all the skill and all the training and all the experience, Father, they're desperately in need of a wisdom that will not come from man. It will come from you. So we ask for that, Father, today. We ask, Father, for those that are, have lost so much, loved ones, family members. Strengthen and encourage them. And, Father, lead their hearts um, to your love, to an understanding of your great love. Father, those that have the opportunity to speak and to witness and to, to testify to your great love in the midst of this pain and loss, Father, empower them by your Spirit. Help us, Father, to know as a body of believers how here we can do our part to facilitate more than anything else, the clear presentation of the gospel of our Savior. It's in his name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.